Welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The purpose of our podcast is to inspire you with stories and wisdom learned from people who are out there killing it. People who at some point in their life gave themselves permission to succeed. Now, onto the show with your hosts, Matt Halloran and Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We are live at the SALT conference at the beautiful Bellagio Hotel. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found a point in their lives to throw all caution aside and go for it. They gave themselves permission to succeed, permission to be special, and help those around them succeed as well. And our guest today has been doing just that for quite a while. Please welcome George Schultze, from, uh, the CEO of Schultze Asset Management. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining us. So tell us a little about your firm. Okay. So uh, Schultze Asset Management, I started it uh, 21 years ago. Uh, we are an event-driven and distressed securities manager. We invest in U.S. companies before, during, and after distress. We focus on event-driven investing within those companies. So we will short sell uh, the stocks of companies that are headed into trouble. Once they're in trouble, we'll buy their distressed debt, typically at pennies on the dollar. Our goal there is to get an equity ownership stake in the business at a discounted price. So we're value investors at heart. And the, uh, the last thing we do is after companies have restructured, we own or buy their uh, post-reorganization equity, as we call it. Uh, some people call that post-reorg equity or orphan equities. But uh, I really think of them as post-distress. So they're companies that have come through the bankruptcy process or something like it. They've come through a terrible time, and they're really sort of starting with a new start, a fresh start, a fresh balance sheet, and with a new opportunity to, to succeed as a, as a successful new company. So that's what we do. We invest before, during, and after distress. We've invested $3.2 billion since inception, and uh, it's an exciting time now because default rates are low, and a lot of people think there's not that much going on in distress, but there is. There's some recent big names that are in distress, maybe Let's talk about Sears or PG&E and Caesars. Yeah. Pick, pick one of those and let's you know find out what happened. Okay. okay. Three interesting stories. Well, Sears, man, the, 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 real, the, the retail market has been so difficult for so long. For decades, it's just become more and more difficult. You know, really with the onset of technological change, secular change, which made the old, I guess, strategy of competing in retail just so difficult. And so your regular brick and mortar retailer, you know, just had an expense structure that no longer made economic sense. Uh, First with companies like Walmart and Costco and Home Depot, putting them out of business. And then more recently, of course, with things like Amazon, Uh, who can compete when, when, you know, your, your main competitor has a zero cost for a lease and you have, you know, big expensive stores all around the country. So think of those stores and their leases as leverage. So Sears is just the last and, 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 you know, long series of other retailers that went bankrupt, whose business really, you know, hardly deserves to exist now that Amazon is here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a sad story. Uh, with retail, we have not uh, made any long investments in that space. We've had some some mistakes, you know, some learning experiences in retail over the years. Um, at one point, we owned a company called Tweeter, which went bankrupt again after we bought it. That was frustrating, but but it's a very difficult business model, retailing in general, and uh, competing against Amazon is not fun. Yeah. Uh, the other two are more interesting, more topical, I think, yeah. uh, these days. Uh, uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric. 
one of the 10 largest bankruptcies of all time. Uh, they, of course, just filed for bankruptcy in January. And uh, so the, 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 the issue there is that 2017 were the worst forest fires in the state of California's history. And then, of course, 2018 was even worse. So record bad fire fi fires, you know, wildfires, that's the column over there. And, you know, for Pacific Gas and Electric, they were really deemed to be negligent in, you know, not properly maintaining their equipment. And that's what drove them into bankruptcy this time around. Mm -hmm. And how about Caesars, since we're here in Las Vegas? Yeah, so we're, we're here at the Bellagio, uh, right across the street from Caesars. Um, Caesars, when it went through bankruptcy, it was the largest ever uh, casino industry bankruptcy. And they've just emerged about, uh, I guess it's been close to 18 months ago now. They're publicly traded, ticker CZR. And it's actually a perfect example of a successful post-reorganization investment. We own that SOC. The business was delevered by, I think it was about $18 billion. It went through a leveraged buyout years ago. Um, and then when it went through bankruptcy, it was a highly litigious, inter-creditor, you know, fighting bankruptcy that ultimately had a major settlement and the business was split into two. One part of it was set up as a new REIT called uh, Vici. And the other one was the Caesars operating casinos, including the one that's right next door to us here. And as such, it's, it's, it's a really you know, phenomenal company. Uh, first in its market share and all the markets where it operates, mostly a domestic operator. Here on the Strip, it's a you know, major operator of casinos. Uh, the business is solid. It's been heavily, you know, its balance sheet has really been cleaned up tremendously through the bankruptcy. But what you've seen now after reorganization is the equity market still doesn't understand it. And, and they've also had some corporate governance changes. Their old CEO, who uh, has been there since prior to the bankruptcy, is now leaving, I, I think at the end of this month, and, uh, or in the middle of this month, the middle of May uh, 2019. And Tony Rodeo, a very successful casino industry executive, is coming in to, to run the operation. He ran Tropicana Entertainment and managed it uh, from the time of its bankruptcy until its successful sale. That's a business we were also invested in. The ticker symbol for that business was uh, TPCA. Together with Carl Icahn, we bought into that. I actually helped to, uh, to structure that company's reorganization. And then after it came out of bankruptcy for a while, it traded in the teens, the stock. And ultimately, we sold it to a different casino operator called Eldorado Resorts for $75 a share. That, that transaction just closed late last year. And I think we're excited, really, to have Tony Rodeo come run the Caesars business, which is now reportedly also up for sale. Um, I think Tony will have some success selling that, too. So the idea with post-reorg equities, and Caesars, again, is a, a great example, is you're buying in after a balance sheet has been cleaned and after the former lenders in a restructuring have taken back equity in exchange for their old claims. It's an experience that most companies don't want to do more than once. But it's a you know really a, you know a, a, an unbelievable way of changing the business and fixing it for the better. Companies get into distress for a variety of reasons. Usually, debt is the main reason. And these days, with you know leverage leverage buyouts and you know an extremely ebullient, I'll call it high yield new issuance market for junk rated debt, companies eventually go bankrupt when things don't go work out so well. And that's what happened with Caesars after it came through and left behind all that debt, all those billions of dollars in liability, the lenders that received the stock were not natural owners of that stock. And that's the arbitrage that we're looking for when we buy these stocks. We try to buy them at a very cheap valuation discount, and then we look for catalysts that may 
make them uh, uh, drive them closer to fair value. In this case, it's it's uh, sort of teed up really well for that with Carl Icahn coming in. He's the largest sh- uh, stockholder now of Caesars. He's brought in Tony Rodeo, who just did the same thing uh, just a few quarters ago with Tropicana, and. Uh, Frankly, I think we'll get a really good price for uh, Caesars when the whole business is sold in the near term. So why the focus on distressed securities? Is that something that you were trained at or specific interest to you? So when I was a younger man, (laughs) you're pretty young, I wound up going from uh, Rutgers College, where I did my undergraduate studies in New Jersey, directly to Columbia Law School. And I selected Columbia Law School because they also had a a great MBA program, a great business school. Eventually, I was able to enroll in both of the you know those graduate schools and earn my JD MBA there. That that training and that you know experience was one where it sort of ideally suited for distressed investing, in my view, because you know when you're making a, a distressed investment, you know you're often dealing with lawyers and investment bankers. What you're really doing is restructuring companies. You're you know. You're rebuilding them, fixing their balance sheet issues, and you know you often find yourself either fighting with or working with attorneys and bankers to you know to restructure those businesses, businesses, and 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 you know take them through you know really a complex change that that uh, your average investor might not necessarily be able to you know be equipped to to understand or you know have experience with. So that's why I like distressed investing. It uses both of those fields and mm-hmm. and, and both of those. Uh, areas of my background. Um, it's also, I would call it, one of the last inefficient markets in the, in the world, really, at least in, in the U.S., because these days more and more ETFs and passive trading investment strategies are getting more and more market share. But you can make, you know, you can make a difference by uh, being an active investor where you focus on a niche market like distressed investing that is really truly still inefficient. So do you think active investing is making a big comeback? I wouldn't say it's making a big comeback, but I think there's a, a place for it in this world. I think the uh, the trends have been the opposite, really, that, that uh, passive investing is ruling the day these days. But I think active investing will come back, especially in certain niche sectors like distressed securities investing, where you know over time I think you can prove that the market is inefficient. And with ETFs, I mean, it's a huge wave these past five years coming on and more and more product is being put into the marketplace. Is that going to continue or is it going to be the next thing like what happens to mutual funds? It's anybody's guess. Right now, though, by last count, I believe there are more ETFs than there are individual securities outstanding. So I think it's unsustainable that it keeps growing at this pace. Eventually, something will happen that you know causes people to lose their excitement about ETFs. Right now, I think ETFs a passive strategy. You know, just being passively invested in the market has been a great alternative for many years now. We've had a 10-year bull run in the in the US equity market. So, if you bought a low-cost ETF, you've probably done pretty well if you just bought it and held it. And so they're lower cost, they've outperformed. Uh, what's not to like? The question is what happens when that changes? And we're at the end, or probably close to the end of the bull market. I'm not calling that you know it's going to end tomorrow. You know, it might continue for another five years, for all I know. But it's not going to go up forever. And when it doesn't, I think that's where active investment managers can really prove themselves: the ability to manage 
you know, look for certain companies that are inexpensive, that might have catalysts or have uh, things, you know, levers you can pull from an activist perspective to get their values up to fair value, like we're seeing with Caesars now and like we saw with Tropicana before. Or on the other hand, short-selling companies that really make no sense. In fact, Pacific Gas and Electric, just switching gears, talk about that one for a second. That one, its biggest shareholders have been passive uh, uh, investment management funds, you know, ETFs and mutual funds that are passive investors. And I think when you're competing against players like that, you really have an advantage when, when valuation is relevant. So in that case, you know, the, the company's in bankruptcy, as I said earlier, right? And it's mm-hmm. one of the largest bankruptcies ever. What most investors may not know is that for U.S. companies, when they file for bankruptcy, the likelihood of shareholders getting anything at all is less than 1% of the time, which seems obvious. You know, the company's in bankruptcy. So what's going to happen to the stockholders? They probably won't get anything. Mm-hmm. Well, this company, PG&E, has over a $10 billion equity to, uh, market capitalization right now. And its biggest shareholders are passive mutual funds and passive ETFs because they don't give a damn what's going on with the business. They just own it because it's large and it's listed. So we'll see. I think, I think you know, with time, those market inefficiencies may you know, prove to be that, just inefficiencies that you know, are there because some of these huge ETFs and passive mutual funds continue buying something that doesn't really make any economic sense at all. Does it feel odd to be excited about distressed companies or (laughs) (laughs) is it helping them get out of the hole and you're also helping people as well? I think there's an element of that. You know, I think of it as uh, recycling capital. I wrote a book a couple years ago called The Art of Vulture Investing. And, you know, people say, oh, that's kind of strange. You like vulture investing. And, you know, why do you get excited when things fail? It's not that we get excited about it, but it's just, it's it's part of the capital markets and it's recycling capital. It's it's redeploying capital from businesses that are failing for whatever reason to new companies that have either a fresh start or have a different business model that stands better to, you know, to compete based on the current dynamic. So, so I wouldn't say we get excited about them, but, but uh, I think, you know, some of us vulture investors provide liquidity that the market needs. And if you didn't have it, I think basically you'd have socialism. So it kind of goes to the heart of whether or not you like capitalism. So let's go a little bit back before Rutgers and growing up. What do you remember from that time and what did you take with you? Hmm. So I was one of uh, the youngest of eight. I grew up in northern New Jersey. We were a busy little family, uh, yeah. four boys, four girls. Went to Rutgers, as I said. Uh, went to high school in Allendale, New Jersey. Lots of noise. Yeah, yeah. One of my mentors and inspirations was actually one of my brothers, who also became one of our first investors in our fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also went to Rutgers. Um, he inspired me. I think uh, uh, the first year at Rutgers, I was probably going to fail out of school and, you know, maybe uh, go into landscaping or something else. Uh, but for some, at some point, uh, he really inspired me to, you know, hunker down and and focus and from then on I did and I, it was uh, I became a straight A student and was actually the Henry Rucker scholar of uh, at Rutgers and you know that's what got me into Columbia Law School and Columbia Business School ultimately but uh, I don't know if that's how far back you wanted to go or now we can go as far as you want um, <laughs> what was it about him that really drew to him because you had so many other brothers and sisters and parents yeah I guess he was just closest in age and I could relate to him more than others um, he's uh He's actually a medical doctor, lives in, Cal- in Colorado now, um, still invests with us, and, and it's been one of my longest and best uh, clients, actually. 
So you started your own firm a long time ago. Yes. What, what about that climb? I mean, when did you think you wanted to have your own firm? And can you think back to, gosh, I'm going to start this firm and it's, it's a climb. It's a struggle. Yeah. So like lots of people that come out of school these days, I had a lot of student loans. I paid for my own way. My parents didn't have a lot of disposable income to, you know, pay for all their eight kids' uh, college education. So I paid for it myself, um, as well as my grad school education. And then after coming out of school, I worked for a fund called MD SAS for several years. And then it was time. I, you know, I'd been running some money for, for my brother and my dad and another one of my brothers and, and my sister as well eventually. And the returns were very good. And, and so I figured, you know, I better do this now because I, you know, it, I know it's risky, but you know, if I don't take the risk now, take the plunge, I may never do this. And it, and it was time to do it uh, back then, 21 years ago. So the initial years were kind of lean uh, and was tough. You know, I'd have to go network and try to find friends and family and others to, to you know, uh, to invest with us. Made a lot of pitches over the years. Learned that, you know, it's not as easy as it seems to start your own business. Maybe I was just young and foolish, but, uh, but ultimately it succeeded. Um, we had in uh, 2004 you know, a big breakthrough. What, what, I, what I found over the years is that, you know, to really succeed, I think the most important thing is to understand what your clients are looking for and to listen to them a lot before you try to sell something to them. And by 2004, we finally figured that out. And uh, there were a lot of clients that we were talking to, mostly in Europe, who were looking for a new type of investment manager with certain types of terms. And we gave them exactly what they wanted. Um, so when we opened an offshore fund and started marketing in Europe, we went from, I think it was about 20 or $30 million in assets to quickly, you know, going beyond a hundred million after six months of, of, of marketing that. And then it, you know, continued up from, from there at, at the peak, we had 740 million in assets and, you know, generating strong returns in, and, and finding inefficient market opportunities was always key. You said giving people what they're looking for, but are people really looking for distressed securities? So I think distressed securities, it's, some would say it's a very cyclical market. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's more distress than others. But what we've tried to do with our fund from the early days is to make something that really stands through the whole cycle. Because we short sell companies that are headed into trouble, because we also buy distressed debt when they are in trouble and then also own the post reorg equities. I think we've extended the cycle. So I, I would say, no, people aren't always looking for distressed securities, but you know, I think they become more familiar with them after there's a big crisis. And then in 2008, we had a huge crisis. A lot of people became very interested in them after that. But I think, you know, when you sit down with an investor and, and walk through the types of investments you're finding, especially these days with low default rates and low interest rates, not too many companies going into bankruptcy, but you do have some big ones like Pacific Gas and Electric, as, as, as I said earlier, it's one of the 10 largest bankruptcies of all time. Mm -hmm. So, so there, there's, there's almost always something happening in distressed securities. And so that's, uh, I guess, one of the reasons I find it just a, you know, a great field for, for me. So owning your own business, beginning your own business, there has to be times when it, it, it's all on you. And you have to have times when you look in the mirror and, and, and think, you know, there's no one coming. And this is the Permission to Succeed podcast. So talk about a time when you just kind of looked in the mirror and said, it's, it's me, we got to do this. Yeah. Jeez, I've had so many of those, uh, uh, you know, moments in, in life, you know, 
I don't know, a specific example. But you, there's, there was always, there's always a new challenge, whether it's, you know, challenge of, you know, trying to achieve certain goals or dealing with some outside situation that's unanticipated. Uh, one thing that really changed, you know, the business for us is, you know, when the great financial crisis came, first of all, we didn't anticipate it would be like that. I don't think anybody really did, right? It was a big surprise to everybody. But what was unusual about that crisis is that a number of our clients became distressed. And so that was a challenging, challenging period of time because many of the traditional fund of funds that were out there operating were now going through their own bankruptcy issues and they became forced redeemers at probably the worst time you could ever, you know, want to take away money from a distressed securities fund. You wanted to put new money in during that opportunity. So that was a challenging time. And uh, I think probably the, you know, the seminal moment after the crisis had begun is, you know, just when the U.S. government started sort of picking winners and losers. Never before had, had anything like that happened. And when, when Chrysler filed for bankruptcy, that was the first time ever an acting president of the United States declared a corporate bankruptcy and, and announced a plan of reorganization for that business. And, and so it was a very tricky time because, you know, the, 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 the rules were all thrown out. And for Chrysler specifically, you know, the priority scheme went backwards. Unsecured creditors got paid before the secured creditors. And it made it very difficult. You know, we suffered losses as a result. As a result. But, but the learning experience from it was really to, to, to maintain, you know, your ability to be nimble and, and, and reinvent. Um, I wrote a book about that, you know, at the time. And, and, and later on, it created a new opportunity because we ultimately made an investment in, in a company called Fiat, which bought Chrysler out of that crisis time for zero. They paid zero to buy it and were able to leave behind $20 billion uh, that basically the taxpayers, you know, the United States taxpayers subsidized uh, uh, to fiat. And so now uh, fiat is a, a tremendous investment. So, so, you know, that's one of many experiences I've had, like the one you've described. You know, we could go on all day about them. Um, I feel like I still have them these days. <laughs> right, right. And when you have that first breakthrough... Does it, it seems to get, does it seem to get easier to continue to look yourself in the mirror and go, I can do this now. I'm, I'm, I got it. I guess. I mean, I guess you mature in, in, in this, like in running a business, like anything, maybe you get less fearful, you know, when there is a crisis, but, but the markets are really amazing in how they change. Uh, one thing we did recently is, uh, we did a SPAC IPO in December where we raised $130 million from investors who are looking for downside protection plus the potential uh, of upside profit from a post-distressed investment idea. Um, so I think that's an exciting new way of raising money. There are good economics for uh, uh, SPAC sponsors like us. And for the investor, you know, it gives them downside protection plus a free look at the equity upside of whatever deal we find. So the markets will always change and you know, new opportunities come and go. But I think being nimble is an important takeaway from it all. How do you view success? Hmm. Good question. So I have six children of my own. I think I will be successful if I, you know, raise them all well, get them started in life well, perhaps get them involved in the business if they'd like to be. I've had a lot of employees over the years. Uh, that's an important part of success also, not just doing well for myself and my family financially, but, you know, having a good lifestyle and, uh, and, and, and 
making sure that the staff that you work with, who are your partners, uh, love what they do, like 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 I love what I do, and uh, and do well for themselves as well. Also, I think it's important to give back. Um, we have a foundation, Schultze Foundation, where we give back. Uh, we also have a, a charitable trust that we set up to give back to you know to important causes. So we'll get you out of here with with this one. What advice do you have to entrepreneurs who are trying to find their way and are struggling, want to be successful? Hmm. Good question. I would say, and this might sound a little bit, you know, canned because, you know, some of the greatest, uh, greats say it, but, but I, but I think it's important to really figure out what it is that you love and try to do what you love, because then if that's what you're doing, you know, it's, it's almost like you're not really working, you know, you're just enjoying yourself day to day in life and make sure to have a good, uh, I guess, work-life balance, you know, stay healthy, eat well, you know, devote time to your family and to, you know, important causes for yourself and for your community. And I think you'll have a good balanced life that way. But, but if people are struggling, you know, business changes. So you have to be dynamic with it and, you know, listen to your customers, give them what they need and want. George, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Likewise. Thank you. For everyone at iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed production staff, we're so appreciative to the SALT Conference for having us here in Las Vegas. This is Doug Heikinen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Bye-bye.